Welcome to Conversations on Public Safety, The Den, a podcast that asks, are we ready to reset the landscape of public safety? Whether you're a veteran of criminal justice, a newcomer who wants to foster change for the next generation, or someone actively involved in the field grappling with the complexities of decision-making, you're invited to the conversation. In each episode, you'll hear from a panel of four highly respected criminal justice thought leaders for an unscripted, unedited, and vulnerable discussion about the future changes needed for policing. Together, they hold more than 100 years of experience and are using our insight to help evolve practices, policies, training, and community relationships. They're challenging themselves and you to get introspective and question the status quo. Let's dive into today's topic. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to The Den. This is Jessica, your host. If you tuned into the last sessions, you heard us debate the big three, crime, race, and capacity. In this session of The Den, we are going to explore that capacity just a little bit more, thinking about leadership, and leadership skills, as well as the ability for leaders to be vulnerable and innovative, thinking about maybe different ways in which a public safety agency could be organized. We jump into pretty interesting ideas that are starting to get explored in just a few of our agencies across America today. We are challenging ourselves to think a little bit differently about who and what public safety includes and does. Let's enter the den. Did you all go through that FBI that puts on the training for chiefs? The National Academy, FBI National Academy. Yeah. Would police chiefs go through that FBI leadership? Obviously, I don't think it's working very well based on what I've seen, based on what you guys have shared with me. I don't know what they trained them to do, but in terms of leadership, but based on what I see, it's not very effective. I've been through all three of them. And while it, there's some good things that you learn, it's really a check the box. Yeah. Right. It's a check the box. I recently had a conversation with a city, a city manager who is dealing with the lack of lack of awareness or lack of professional development among the senior ranks of a department. And so they put out the, you know, here's you have X doll, up to X dollars to take leadership development and you cannot go to a cop shop. Like no FBI, wow. no nothing. Right. So you can go to Harvard, you can do Cornell, you can do ICMA, you can do other things that fit some type of leadership executive. And there's a couple of other ones that they they picked or for the handful of people that took the city manager up on their offer, city administrator up on their offer, as long as it was not a law enforcement run leadership. But those are the kinds of things I think we have to start thinking about the critical thinking skills and then just again how to make and stand behind a difficult decision. Even if it's the wrong decision, then how to address that. You know, if, if a leader says we're going to go this direction and it falls flat on its face, at least the leader then should get credit, I guess, for saying, hey, we tried, we blew it. We can flush that one down the toilet. We learned from it, we can move on. But if you fail, you're fired. If you make a bad decision, you're fired. Now we have chiefs and sheriffs that come behind those fired people who say, I learned that lesson. I'm not going to do that. 
you know, I'm not going to stand up and take a chance unless I've got my retirement in and can afford to do that. I'm past retirement, so fire me. It's not going to hurt me at all, that kind of thing. But even then, it sends a terrible message to the rest of the law enforcement leadership across the country that if you screw up, you're going to get fired. Yeah. One of the things that uh, it's related to all this, it's it's in terms of a future structure for policing. And I see two models emerging. I see one in Albuquerque where they set up an office of community, the Department of Community Safety, which runs parallel with the police department. And in this Department of Community Safety, they're hiring civilians to respond to certain categories of 911 calls. If it's a call involving a homeless person or, you know, if it's someone who's having a mental health crisis, they have a whole category of calls that they now take ownership of. But it's a separate department. I think in, in uh, there was a big article, a front page article in, in the Washington Post about Austin, Texas. And Austin wanted to set up something similar. But they have a, uh, they passed a state law in Austin that freezes police budgets. And now you can't, you, can't, you can't defund the police in the state of Texas. You can't reduce their budgets at all. So the chief in Austin wanted to do a similar thing. He wanted to, look, I don't want my guys going out to, you know, get cats out of trees anymore or to go deal with an abandoned car problem or to deal with traffic issues or to um, respond to a homeless person, you know, who's, who's lying on the street somewhere. I don't know what my office is doing anymore. But he had to bring all of these functions, he had to keep all these functions within his the police department. So he set up a separate division within the Austin Police Department. They're separate apart. They operate separate apart from the uniform division to deal with these issues. That just shows the innovation. And again, a chief that's willing to try something different, there's a willingness to try things. And so let's be innovative with what we have, you know, as a department. So you've got Austin that says, okay, I can't give up any money, but by golly, I can hire people in vacant slots and reallocate those personnel if city council agrees to do the work. That's, that's what police chiefs should be doing. I think that's the whole point of where we are professionally, that you have chiefs who say, I'm a hundred officers short. So I'm a hundred officers short. And I can complain about not, not having 100 officers instead of going out and saying, you know what, Mr. Miss City Council, or the mayor or city manager, I want to take 50 of those slots and hire 50 civilians to do this number or this type of call for service, this kind of work. Well, Jessica and I were talking about this and we can't, can't do it for this call. Maybe Jessica can help us out and kind of come up with kind of an initial list. Is actually going through a list of current standard traditional police functions, things that, that go on within a department. I got 50-something things on here saying, do we need a police officer to perform always, sometimes never, and if not officers, then who? Yeah, yeah but for our next call, go through, you know, actually fill this out and go ahead and go through an exercise. As a group, let's design the 22nd century. <laughs> that's, how much, that's how long it might take. <laughs> <laughs> at, least, at least the second half of the 21st century <laughs> police department and what it may look like. Those things that sworn personnel can be expected to continue to do, those things that uniform personnel or, the, or personnel that, that's part of a department of community safety that they can do. 
and actually go through and do kind of a careful analysis and put something out there for the discussion. I mean, that could be an article that we could actually do. Put that list back up, Jessica. <laughs> yeah, it could probably be a lot longer. And I think that's part of the discussion here of like what needs to get broken out. And otherwise, the category is really mine where I see it's administration versus other services or entities, which I could probably put as category being the typical divisions, right? You have an investigative division, a patrol division or bureau and an administrative and support services bureau. So I guess I could do it that way, too. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, 90, not almost 90 percent of what you have up here, I think, could be done by somebody other than a, a sworn <laughs> law enforcement person. I see, think. And, see and, and Ronnie, that's a radical revolutionary thought you just said there, but I agree with you. I believe that there's greater stability with civilians. Classic example, the evolution of civilian crime scene search. There you have a consistent group of people that are able to be trained, same way with crime analysis, that you can provide training for them, you can provide other resources for them in order to do, and you stabilize a section of your department that's unlike any other part of your department. The turnover in patrol and investigations and other specialized assignments is great, but you don't see that much turnover in in those stabilized units, such as that where you can put a civilian in and, and not just sprinkle one or two in there. I mean, but create a unit that's made up of civilians that can, you know, create their own network, create their own value where when you got sworn and civilian within the in the same unit, there's a tendency to, to value one less than the other. And that's not right. But just because you got carry a badge and a gun doesn't make you more important than, than, than somebody else. So I think in allowing them to create their own unit and create their own, establish their own identity within their unit, that benefits the department much more than, well, let's just put one or two civilians in here, but, you know, let's keep it predominantly. And those sworn are going to turn over. You know, they're going to get tired because they have the ability to say, okay, I don't want to do investigations anymore. I want to go over here and do something else. I don't want to do patrolling. Right. But when you're in a crime scene search, that's what you were hired for. It's so interesting because uh, from a job task analysis to like understanding data problems to understanding police functions or community relations, the best data and the best processes exist within those professional or civilian positions, right? Like part of that is because in order to do crime scene correctly, you have to go through training and process it, right? Like, I mean, everything of like, how do I collect this blood versus that hair versus this fingerprint and how do I label and consistently do it, which while we would like to think that police reports are consistent, officers have never filled out a police report and a supervisor, sergeant, somebody has never approved police reports in a consistent manner. And therefore, the data that you then use for your decision making is not well enough, but you have professionals or civilians that are in charge of your evidence room. Evidence doesn't get lost then. It doesn't seem to deteriorate then. (laughs) It doesn't seem to get misshuffled or 
left in a locker for too long or, you know, right? Like it all goes through a process that everybody's been trained and certified in. And when you don't have that training and certification happen within the sworn ranks, you see exactly what we've we've seen for the several years. Yeah, I mean, if the three of you fill this out, I'll, yeah, and I'll fill it out as well, although I, I've never worked in the police department, so my my filling it out, filling it out is probably not as, uh, uh, as, you know, I don't have the insights you all have, but I have worked with them yeah. for many, many years, and I clearly had my own struggles. I remember when I was working with the, D.C. Police Department as a uh, analyst and as somebody who was responsible for coordinating their budgets when I worked at the city manager's office. I was always frustrated because of people being transferred, one, and two, people just not having the expertise. For instance, I used to deal with the people in the budget office or in the finance office or even in the, even in the technology offices, and they knew less about this stuff than I did, but they didn't have a background in it. They just got transferred there until you're in charge of this. <laughs> you, you remember the Sammy Morrison's, you know, the budget office in the police department was always run by a sworn deputy chief I know. Or, or whatever yeah. with no no background. I, I can just transfer you somewhere yeah. else. If there was a civilian occupying that post, they couldn't move that person as fast as they could a, a sworn person. But Steve, yeah. Jessica, I think it's important for you guys to do it, to fill it out as well. Because yeah. I think you would come from it from a different perspective. And I think that, you know, hearing that perspective, because, you know, sometimes I'm stuck on investigations that I believe that a detective has to conduct investigation. But I think there's other aspects of that investigation that are, are critical, like follow up with complainants. I think that there, there's there's more that can be done on on the civilian side with some of that oh. than just the you know the, the initial investigation who's out there interviewing people and so forth. So I mean I, I would love to hear your your perspective on on those those areas on how they could be different. I have to say I really enjoyed kind of like seeing the divide and it's you know I mean this is a small group we definitely have our own three of us have been officers two of us have been leaders. And otherwise, Steve, you've just had a, a, a lifelong exposure and interactions in variety of formats. So, yeah, so it was pretty interesting to kind of see like where we fit, where we agreed, where we disagreed and why we just perhaps maybe why we disagreed. And I found that for us, the interesting things were like, you know, it's not just that you and Harold and Rodney, that you all being police chiefs always agreed. There were some things that you all being police chiefs inherently disagreed on, right? Or that you were on the opposite end of the spectrum. Steve, you had some very interesting aspects as well. So I want to kind of call a couple of those things out of like where some of those kind of clear lines for us would be and, and you know, maybe discuss as to why those are clear lines. So I gave you a list of 61 activities that were around police activities and responsibilities. So they were sectioned off a little bit by divisions and overall functions. And then Harold, you added a seven more on just to yours. So some of those I responded to since you turned it over back to me, but Rodney and Steve haven't responded to those, but those additional seven were at least added into a total 68 items. He should be marked down for not following, um, I'm sorry. <laughs> for not that following the rules. That's, that's that's the mark of a motivated individual who is thinking, always thinking, but it's okay. I, go ahead. I'll take your abuse too. Go ahead. 
this was the interesting part, not only just what you added, Harold, but even like where I think some of the divides were, were, were really more about the buckets of activities that needed to maybe be like separated out a little bit of like how you interpreted the overall function versus various steps within the function. So I'll get into those. But otherwise, you were just asked to do like a very quick, always, sometimes, never for a police officer, a sworn police officer to be responsible in responding to that activity. And then just because we are a small group, it's not a really like percentage of like how many times did we agree or disagree or like where's the variations. But, you know, definitely of like just kind of thinking through those preferred responses there. With my 61 plus seven, who's the first one to turn theirs back into you, Jessica? <laughs> It was me, Harold. <laughs> I will have to go back and look. That was in December, but. It, it was me, Jessica. <laughs> I jumped right on it. <laughs> I will look up before we get off just so that we can, we can, you know, complete the type A personalities. <laughs> <laughs> So one of the other things that interests me, like when I was going over this, like I'm, I talked to Steve briefly, I think over the holiday time or, or maybe right here after the first of the year and told him I was looking at, I went back to the LEMAS data, which is the Law Enforcement Management Administrative Survey that has been done since 2000. It's done about every four years by the Bureau of Justice Statistics. The last year being 2016, in which it kind of did the survey response. Without to bore you on the research aspects, not every agency answers, probably only 20% of the agencies pulled at, or 20% of all agencies actually respond. But it's a pretty consistent survey to kind of see it over time of like, what's the divide of large or small agencies and how many full-time sworn and full-time civilians do they have, full-time and part-time civilians that they have. So I was pulling a couple of those numbers together. And because, you know, the Department of Justice doesn't really want to do longitudinal data, it's a little difficult to compare over years, but I'm still working on it. But I have a couple of things to talk about for that. But it did kind of go with some classes that I taught over in London a few years ago about like the privatization of policing. So I pulled a couple of things about the first kind of aha for us, which is clearly we all want to change the organization, which is primarily about patrol. So you guys know that 70 to 80% of police staffing is dedicated to patrol divisions and those traffic stops in the you know, world of traffic and traffic enforcement is the most prevalent way in which police contact the public or are constantly seen or interact. So I found it interesting. I always find it interesting when these kind of non-academic folks try to do surveys. The Police One survey done in the middle of last year actually was about a thousand officers that answered and 87% of those said they did not support any kind of like reduce or abolish police or defund police that got rid of any of enforcement over traffic. And that was interesting to me, one, because I'm, you know, it's kind of like microcosm that they just keep interviewing or, or asking, but then they throw out this like, hey, a large majority of us don't support this when really it was only about a thousand officers from just a police one kind of blog site. The point about 70 to 80 percent of police staffing is dedicated to patrol division. I think that's a misnomer. I think people misrepresent that. And I think the definition of patrol divisions needs to be more clearly defined. Because to me, patrol divisions are those that are answering calls for service, that are working specifically for a beat 
or specific area within a patrol division. These units that citywide or come in and out or don't have a, a real geographical defined area, I don't consider them to be a part of patrol. Yeah. Well, I'll add to that. I don't think detectives that are assigned to patrol divisions, the property crimes detectives, I don't think they should be counted as patrol either. There are a lot of hidden people in a lot of departments in the patrol divisions, districts, yeah. divisions, whatever. So this was the most interesting part when I was going back to, right, like, because that 70 to 80 percent has kind of been that, like, thing forever, right? Everybody just kind of accepted as fact. It was actually the 2016 Lima survey that started to separate out not just like the full number of sworn or everybody in patrol, this idea that everybody's in patrol or you're in investigations or you're not a cop, right? Like, that's the kind of misnomer that kind of exists there. And so that's what actually makes it difficult to compare 2016 data to all prior years is that that it actually starts to flush out that like how many officers are actually assigned to patrol traffic division versus patrol calls for service division. And unfortunately, they haven't done the survey again to kind of see how that's changed from 2016 to now we are in 2022. Well, Ronnie and Harold, what's your best guess as to what the actual percentage might be? those who answer calls for service, those who are really truly in patrol division? I think it's in the low 60s to high 50. Agree. I was going to say 50%. I mean, I start thinking about street crimes units that are assigned to, to divisions, the detectives, the quote-unquote community police officers, which drives me out of my mind, that are not answering calls for service. You name a job, and they'll hide it in a patrol division like nobody's business. Yeah. This, so this is the most interesting part when I look at agencies and think about like, how is their workload distributed? Because there's this, so much is hidden within that patrol division. A lot of resources, funding, money, like everything from shift differentials to bid positions to all this other like union, all of it is tied up in there. And yet like the, the sole function whether it's calls for service or traffic stops is the one that causes that most contention, right? So to the last point of like persistently over the years, we've shown that there's disparate contact, disparate outcomes, disparate. Well, it's very easy for people to attack the police under the 80% of your workforce is supposed to be doing traffic. Again, this is the misnomer. If they're supposed to be doing traffic and that's the way that they're in contact, and yet we see all of this disparate or, you know, discriminatory behaviors that way, of course, the volume of like defund or abolish seems to be like break this system apart, break this organization apart. So those are the interesting things for me when I look across, like, what does all the research say? What are some of these like non-research things tried to kind of hammer home and kind of create that, that cognitive dissonance between what is the function of patrol versus what do we feel like we have the power of, right? Which is the, the law enforcement officer saying like, no, this is our, our sole purpose. This is what we're trained to do or what we're supposed to be doing. What would I be doing if you took that away? And they don't know that. They don't know what they're going to. We apparently know what they're going to because this was the section that we all agreed. <laughs> like the most agreements across all four of us were in this patrol section we should just stop doing a lot of these enforcement aspects. And then obviously we have a few categories where 
Harold, you were the, the one that was mostly in the sometimes. And then Steve and I just showed up a couple of times for, for two things as to where we think it's important for officers to engage in some type of patrol or traffic enforcement type of things. So this was the clearest bucket for us. Any thoughts? The traffic enforcement as it relates to speeding and red lights, I think that there is technology that can really address that if done properly. Some would argue that, you know, it's a money-making business, but, you know, to have an officer sitting on a running radar or red lights is just as easy to, to use cameras or other technology to, to detect that. My thinking in my sometimes uh, was because it's a, it's broad. You know, when you talk about construction zones, you talk about people, you know, out there working and getting run over. It's all about, to me, it's all about safety. And then the uh, traffic enforcement where you have high accident zones, there are occasions where they need to, we need to do that, but not all the time. The traffic accident reconstruction, again, it, it depends on the circumstances and and then the dignitary stuff. Again, I'm not sure I'd want a non-sworn person running that. Maybe, maybe it's just that we don't do them and we let the uh, Secret Service run their own gigs, but that can't happen or the, you know, the highway patrol for governors. But if we're talking about blanket statements, if everybody's in or everybody's out, that's, that's where my sometimes came in. You know, I hesitated on speeding red lights because I thought about DUIs. Yep. And uh, thinking that that's the one situation where you probably want an officer instead of a civilian enforcing any traffic laws. DUI, right? Yeah, DUI. DUI. Yeah, that's not listed. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. so the the other reason why this one was interesting to me is that for one of the agencies that I'm working with, we just finished a traffic analysis for them, and it was really around trying to free up some time in patrol, right? Like what, if patrol is constantly responding to accidents, and are those accidents people injury or just property obviously fatalities are just a whole nother level. Like what has changed about that kind of whole demand on accidents in their jurisdiction that is changing the demands on patrol. And of course they wanted to have data around what was important or the reality of this kind of time allotment versus not. And NHTSA produced a report kind of summarizing like what was the impact of COVID on traffic accidents. And while we saw kind of the traffic accidents both injury and non-injury decline kind of nationwide, fatality skyrocketed. And to include the jurisdiction that we were looking at, they don't have a lot. It's a smaller jurisdiction, but six for them is the highest they've had in five years. And so having all of those kind of in one year when they've like maybe had one fatality a year was pretty impactful for that small jurisdiction. But it was consistent with the rest of the country saying high fatalities but really seeing a low number of both property damage or non-injury or, you know, kind of low level injuries from traffic accidents across the country. So a lot of people have some thoughts about this as far as like, well, officers weren't allowed to engage during COVID or weren't actively patrolling. And so maybe that did mean more people were driving drunk because a lot of the fatalities in general and across the nation are single vehicle accidents. So it comes down to obviously not pileups and kind of traffic related as it is uh, 
single driver error, whether that's due to alcohol or other substances or, you know, other kind of weather conditions, and then hitting something and being ejected from the vehicle or otherwise. Is it possible to train a, a core of civilians to do traffic enforcement, even manage a construction zone or respond to accidents? I mean, they get the same training as the officer would to deal with those situations. Why wouldn't they suffice? I mean, what well, enforcement action would they really need to take in those situations? Yeah, the person Steve, is, is fully trained. Couldn't he handle that? Well, you can train non-sworn people to do construction zone traffic management. Yeah. So, you know, stop and go, you know, all of that stuff. I mean, in North Carolina, they'll put an unmarked county sheriff car with blue lights and an extra battery out, and they'll run that thing, you know, 12 hours a day you know, with the blue lights on as you in, enter a, a construction zone, but you let one crash happen. And son, let me tell you right now, there'll be troopers hauling all over that place. And rightfully so, you know, if you've got somebody that gets hurt or a construction worker that gets hurt. So if you're talking about traffic management around a con- construction zone, absolutely. But at some point, I, and I think this is where a lot of my sometimes got to in a lot of this, sooner or later, somebody's got to walk up to that car. Sooner or later, somebody's got to turn some lights on and walk up to that car. And I think to Rodney's point, you could do traffic enforcement with mobile cameras where somebody goes blowing through a construction zone. They put the camera trailer out there and they just knock out uh, ticket after ticket after ticket. But again, the, the minute somebody gets hurt, a crash or something like that, you got to have people that, that are going to start making an impact. So yeah, I think it just has to be, you have to use some reasonable sense. Well, maybe accident. Accident could be many things. Accident could be uh, hitting a bumper when there's no major injury and no major damage. Or uh, accident yeah. could be a fatality and, and a disaster. Yeah. I think from an accident perspective, insurance companies, we pay a, a lot of money in premiums to insurance companies. and 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 I learned this a while back that, they have one of the biggest lobbying constituencies in, in the country where they can go to state legislators and say, hey, I want the police to, to be the initial investigators of these accidents to give us some foundation of, of where we should pay a claim or not pay a claim and, and so forth. And that's how we, we, we police have gotten involved in these, these accidents. I think short of not even injuries, but but I would go as far as to say death, that, that police should not be responsible for investigating accidents. Let the insurance companies hire investigators or, or whoever that go out and respond to these accidents. You know, other than providing traffic control and opening up roadways and things of that nature, hey, I would turn that over to the insurance companies in a, in a, in a heartbeat. But you, you do have instances of criminal negligence where somebody is is criminally negligent. They're driving like a, you know, they're drunk or they're driving yes. out of control and they run over people. Generally, if the officer does not witness that or you don't have yeah. a witness that's willing to say, I saw Harold Medlock stagger out of that car dead drunk after he hit three children in a, you know, in a school bus and put them all over the road. They won't charge. We can investigate it, but they're not. If you don't have a witness, and if you don't have an officer that witnesses it, 
that's a problem there. Jessica, maybe what we do is further define that. You know, when, yeah. when we say traffic act first, I hate to use the word accident. It's a crash. There's no, it, it, there's nothing accidental about a crash. If somebody had their head up their butt, uh, what at least one person. So when you talk about traffic crashes, maybe what we do is, and I'm good with, with Rodney's suggestion, you know, death. Anybody can investigate it, but I can't even use the guy in Wisconsin that ran down the parade. That wasn't a traffic accident. That was a terrorist incident as far as I'm concerned. I mean, that guy just mowed people down. But something in criminally in, intentional that we tried to get out of it a long time ago, CMPD, and, and the insurance companies wouldn't have any, any part of it. So Technically, the PD would still be involved. They just wouldn't be using sworn personnel. Why do they need to still be involved, Steve? Exactly. Well, they really don't. You're right. I mean, exactly. you're right. They can hire retired police officers or whatever, you know, to come in and if you work for Allstate or Nationwide or whatever the case, you can either contract with these individuals or you can work specifically for them. And, you know, the same way that they have adjusters that come out to look at your car and say, you know, this is how much damage it is and this is how much money you get and so forth. You know, you can have investigators that come out and, and investigate the accidents, you know, interview. Uh, it's, it's a lot, it's a lot like arson investigators. I mean, insurance companies, you know, the PDs or law enforcement will investigate a, uh, an arson, but I guarantee you every insurance company has got arson investigators that usually were trained by the police department. Oh, That's yeah. where they got all their certifications and training. I mean, there's plenty of traffic hounds out there that that uh, when they retire would would go and do that if if you could if you could get it worked out. But you know, citizens are not they they're gonna have time hard time swallowing this. It yeah. took them a hard time to swallow just not showing up for any accident. But if you have a if you have a serious crash, and I got a belligerent guy who thinks it's my fault and I think it's his fault and he won't give me his insurance information or lighty light eye. The first thing I'm gonna do is call, okay, I gotta call, I gotta call 911 and get somebody. Well then That's you call, be my you're calling for something else then, Steve. You're not calling for the accident, you're calling for the fact that somebody's, you know, possibly, you know, is gonna assault someone or or something. So I'll respond for that. Okay, but, I got uh, it. As far as coming and, you know, taking a report and you telling me what happened and they're telling me what happened, 90% of the time, we don't even write tickets in yeah. accidents. And and, yeah. and that's what the citizens have a rub about. Well, he ran into the back of me. You need to give him a ticket for yeah. running into the back of me. Well, no, you, you, you're selling that amongst your insurance company because yeah. they're looking for us to say you're not at fault. They are at fault. And, and, you know, we, we shouldn't be arbitrators of that. So the interesting part for me here is that I think there's a there's a couple of maybe we need to explore this in a session of like what if we change even that 50 percent of folks that are in patrol, knowing that part of their time is eaten up with some of these activities. So there's rideshare apps that I can check into a car and, and activate a car by taking all, you know, pictures of four sides and it recognizes any scratches, bumps and uses other AI technology. My Geico insurance uses that. So if I get into an accident, I can take pictures, automatically upload all of those things to from my car as well as the other car. And you're right, Rodney, the insurance companies, I mean, some of the best investigators I've worked with have come from them because, I mean, they're they're protecting millions of dollars, right? right. They, the last thing we want to do is pay out. 
They want you to pay in, but do not want you to pay out. (laughs) And so they are trying to find every loophole reason, whether that's a legitimate business or otherwise. But the most interesting aspect to me is what doesn't get investigated by patrol is the patterns of accidents and where fraudulent activities are happening. So that was a big issue up in Northern Virginia is that you had people going out kind of readily causing accidents and then committing both insurance fraud and medical fraud within their network of medical doctors and otherwise. And it was a whole insurance scam that the police department had zero capability of actually doing, but yet that is what the higher crime is, right? It's like the fender bender is not necessarily the crime. We don't even categorize it as a crime within the department. We're not writing tickets. We're not going up to court for it. It really doesn't require sworn officers. But the actual, like, you're now liable for something, you fraud, you know, defrauded somebody or an organization for it. And police actually just don't even know what to do with that. And we, and we shouldn't. We shouldn't because we don't have the capabilities to investigate it. It's kind of like bank fraud, credit card fraud. You know, we don't have the resources to investigate credit card fraud or, you know, check kiting or, or that, that's I think that's best left up to the to the banks that they have the authority, that they can conduct the investigation now, they can go before a judge and, and swear out an affidavit for a warrant, just like a detective could. Same way with, you know, insurance. You know, you can have certified investigators that have the ability to go before the courts to obtain warrants. Now, you know, once the warrant is, is obtained, now we need to go out and, you know, assist in, in, in arresting the individual. I don't have a problem with that. But uh, the time that's spent investigating those cases, if you were to take those cases off the plates of of detectives, I wouldn't need as many detectives to come out of patrol to be detectives. I can leave them in patrol answering calls for service versus having them do the work that others are more capable of doing. Banks, insurance companies, they got the money and the resources to, to investigate those type of crimes. Yeah. And the, the interesting part is that they like their motivation is different, right? Like for, for officers, it's to catch the bad guy, right? Yeah. To find, you know, someone at fault and then isolate that person, perhaps. It doesn't matter to them as to whether that person goes away for a long time in prison or something. They just want to recoup what's lost, right? right? And that's right. a different that is a totally different perspective than the enforcement or the, you know, penalizing aspects of law enforcement. Thanks for listening. If you want to learn more about today's topic, idea analytics, or work with them, visit their website, analyticsbyidea.com. There you'll find their latest blog posts, case studies, and contact information. If you enjoyed this episode, remember to subscribe, rate, and review Conversations on Public Safety, The Den, on your preferred podcasting platform. See you next time.